Hello and welcome to Overdrive. We're back with new programs for 2021. I'm David Brown. A lot has happened in the holiday break, so we have a packed show, including news and the first in a series of highlights from an interview with international race and rally legend Rauno Altonen. Oh, he's good. I've been round testing an electric vehicle over a long period and more than just the typical short trip. The results were revealing. And we have a series of motoring minutes to catch up on some of the happenings while we were on holidays. You can find more information at drivenmedia.com.au. Of course, the programs are podcast on Spotify or iTunes, or there's our Facebook page, Overdrive City. So let's start the program with the news. One of Overdrive's favourite vehicles is the Kia Carnival 8-seater People Mover, and Kia has just launched their new fourth-generation model. People Movers had a stodgy image, a bit like a pair of sensible shoes. They do the job, but not something you want to be seen in. The new Carnival continues the significant improvements with a style that strives to be more SUV than glorified van. Kia would even like to see a new abbreviation, GUV, Grand Utility Vehicle. Maybe. The Carnival has dominated the market with over 50% of sales in the category, but with COVID-19, 2020 saw people mover sales halved. There are two engine choices, a powerful petrol and a solid diesel, and plenty of comfort and safety features, especially if you move to the more prestigious models. Price starts from just under $47,000 to nearly $59,000 plus on-road costs. Car manufacturers are happy to produce SUVs as there are plenty of people who are prepared to pay more for them than the cost of a similar sedan. Now Kia has a first-time entrance in the smallest category of SUVs, the Stonic. They're not off-roaders with only front-wheel drive. They use their existing 1.4-litre petrol engine with a six-speed manual or automatic or their one-litre turbo with a seven-speed dual clutch. The light segment is currently one of the smaller SUV categories. The Mazda CX-3 has been the big seller, but there are a number of new players, including the VW T-Cross, the Toyota Yaris Cross, and the Ford Puma. The Kia Stonic comes in three variants with the base version manual, starting at $21,500 plus on-roads, up to the sporty GT line at $30,000, and at the moment they're not charging any on-road costs for the top-of-the-line model. Two large car manufacturers have merged. The PSA Group with Peugeot, Citroen, Opel and Vauxhall brands has merged with Fiat Chrysler with brands such as Alfa Romeo, Chrysler, Dodge, Fiat, Jeep, Lancia, Maserati and Ram trucks. They used to have Ferrari, but that was spun off in 2016. There is an overriding company named Stellantis, but the existing brands will keep their original names. The merger means a well-established presence in Europe, North America and Latin America, but untapped potential in markets such as China, Africa, the Middle East, Oceania and India. Blending the two companies' resources is essential. Stellantis now has, for example, 29 electrified models and plans to introduce another 10 vehicles by the end of the year. 
most mergers use the PR spin of being a merger of equals. But an overriding company can reduce the perception of one partner dominating the other. Renault has launched a new car brand called Mobilize, aimed at the urban car share market, and it will have specific vehicles to suit their purpose. With the new Mobilize, it, it will work as a pay-as-you-go service. With the new Mobilize EZ1 rented on a time or a distance-covered basis. Inside, they say it's a one-plus-one seating arrangement, which means it's narrow. It's aimed at city dwellers, particularly as a commuter car or a delivery van for urban-based courier firms. It's electric, just 2.3 metres long, and they claim it's been made of 50% recyclable material, while up to 95% of the vehicle is reusable at the end of its life. There's no word when Mobilize will launch, but Group Renault is forecasting that the car share business will account for around 50% of its revenue by 2030. Jaguar is celebrating the 70th anniversary of the legendary C-Type sports racer. The C-Type was made between 1951 and 53. Then the D-Type, both of which were made for racing, but the flowing shape would later morph into the more made-for-the-road E-Type. The C-Type won the Le Mans 24 Hours on its debut in 1951, the first of Jaguar's seven outright wins in this event. It had Jaguar's famous straight-six cylinder engine, but one of its major technological developments came in 1952 when it pioneered disc brake technology in motorsport, scoring the first win for a disc brake car with Sterling Moss at the, at the Reims Grand Prix in France and contesting the 1,000-mile Millet Miglia in Italy. There are replicas, but for the anniversary, a small number of factory-built examples of the 1953 Works C-Type can be purchased direct from Jaguar for the first time. And that has been the news. The latest Land Cruiser Sahara was launched way back in 2015, and while it remains probably the most robust four-wheel drive on the market, it is showing its age in other areas. My first Land Cruiser was a HJ60 Sahara bought in 1986, and it has remained a favourite ever since. Yet it competes in the prestige segment of the SUV market, and as such, its age, lack of some technology, safety and connectivity features is becoming obvious. What is also obvious is the awesome four-wheel drive capability, the powerful engine, and for its size, it handles reasonably well. I simply love it and its faults. There is a special feeling you get cruising along the road in one of these, and being able to turn off the main road to a beach, a fire trail, the snow, or even further outback, and the confidence of being able to take your family virtually anywhere and back in safety is awesome. It provides a relaxed, pleasant driving experience, is universally practical, is great for families, towing a van, outback tourists, and true four-wheel drive enthusiasts. It is expensive at around $125,000, plus the usual costs, but represents pretty good value for money. I'm Rob Fraser. You're listening to Overdrive. Renault Altonen has been an international racing and rally champion. He still has a racing licence and he's 83 years old. We love him in Australia because he came out here and with local hero and good friend of this program, Bob Holden, won the Bathurst 500 mile race in 1966 in a mini. 
I recorded a long chat with Rauno from his home in Finland and we will continue with highlights over the next few weeks. And so to start it off, we talked of the many times he competed in the East African Car Rally. Unfortunately, the local lads had a game of testing their accuracy skills by throwing stones trying to hit the fast-moving rally cars. I asked Rano about this, and he replied with his usual precision in describing a situation. Dealing with unusual situations in the African safaris, I think you were stoned on a number of occasions. I think that I've been stoned um, 82 times in my career. (laughs) I'm amazed that you counted it as well, but it wasn't necessarily malicious, was it? No, no, you see, it's a... Some of the local kids, you know, they found it interesting trying to hit the car with a rock when it comes by. So uh, this is a little bit cruel, but this is what we had to do. If we, if we saw somebody walking on the roadside where we, are, uh, we were approaching sort of 100 miles an hour on dirt, before we come very close, I, I would swing the car to get a little bit sideways so that the person would get scared and would start running away. The reason is, it's difficult for the running man to throw a rock. <laughs> and, you know, there's all kinds of tricks like these. Because if you are, if he's walking steadily, he might have a rock in his hand, and when you then are very close to him, he will then throw the rock to the center of the road, I mean, quite high. And it will hit your windscreen. That's what they often tried. So I could avoid that by making them to run. Oh, that's that's beautiful. <laughs> that's a... <laughs> not 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 touching them, not going too close, but just scaring them. No, no. I mean, this is what people would say: that you are, you are naughty and terrible, and that's not the right way to do. And etc. Et but that, that's life. No, no, no one would judge you harshly, I don't think, on that. You, you weren't being malicious, you were just being preventative. Um, yes, that's a nice way of putting it. <laughs> <laughs> How hard was it to learn the Bathurst circuit? I must say that I don't remember. I, I think I had been there before. So it wasn't the first time, and uh, the circuit was not so difficult to learn. It, uh, because it was mainly sharp corners, except on the, on the Mount Panorama, where you had a very sort of a series of corners where you had to choose your line. And uh, we, dis- of course, we discussed with Bob about the line, what he thought was the best, and, and I agreed with him. So it was mostly the line which we agreed together to drive with saloon cars. It's not the principle as you you have in the, in the in the formula cars, where it's important to get quickly out of the corner. In in the saloon cars, you have to you have to go fast into the corner as well, because with a small engine, you have to keep the momentum going on all the time, which means that you have to have a smooth line, so that if you get it sideways, the car will slow down too much. So. Smooth driving is the essence of this kind of racing. And also, because it was a long race, you have to be smooth with the car 
to preserve your tyres. You've spoken how the preparation of a rally car is quite different from a race car. What about driving them? Did you ever find it difficult to go from one to the other? No, no. In that sense, there is no difference, except that in in racing, you have much wider space to use (laughs) for your line. And in rally, you often... There is no space at all. It's very narrow. And, and also in, in rallies, you have to take more into consideration the road surface, how bumpy it is, and, and, and how much you can cut the corner, etc. Et so it, it, it's, a slight, it's a different technique slightly. In, in principle, it's all, it has all to do with the radius of the curve have the best possible fastest line through it. In, in rallies, you have a problem that nearly every car is understeering for the speeds uh, which we are driving in rallies because any car gets less understeering with the increase in speed. And this means that in rally sport, in the tighter corners, we have to throw the car sideways, force it sideways so it doesn't understeer too much. And this, of course, slows down, but that's the, the fastest way in rally sport, whereas in faster sections in rallying, you drive the same line as in racing. Try to avoid the drift, because going sideways slows you down. And the speeds in, in like in Bathurst, the Mount Panorama circuit, the speeds are reasonably high, so the understeering was not a problem. Is rallying then far more mentally draining because you have to be looking so much at so many factors like the road condition? Did you find rallying more tiring than on the circuit? Well, not that really because being then fully professional, I I used the whole year driving the car in in motorsport. So you get used used to it then. As I say, you can never drive by force or good luck because if you drive that, you will never finish. It's not a bravery. You're not trying to to be brave and go over your limit. You try to be sensible and be on the limit all the time. And the point in in racing is it's accuracy where you start braking, how much you turn the steering wheel, and, and do it accurately, because there are many different styles how you can drive a car. Yeah. And being accurate, that will save the car and make consistent lap times, which is a whole point. And if, if you think that the, the brakes, you cannot brake as late as possible because the brakes will overheat. You will have to understand and think what will be the right compromise for braking, slowing down the speed? For more information about this interview and others, go to drivenmedia.com.au. Overdrive, answering your questions across Australia.
The Ram 1500 Warlock, launched in July last year, is aimed squarely at four-wheel drive enthusiasts. It's powered by a 5.7-litre V8 Hemi petrol engine that pumps out 291 kilowatts of power and 556 newton metres of torque. It's got an 820 kilo payload, will tow four and a half tonnes, and seat five in total comfort. It's based on the new crew cab and added features include a unique exterior styling, Ram box cargo management system, leather trimmed upholstery and a one inch factory fit suspension lift. We drove the flame red version and the head turning style comes from the Rebel Look front grille. It's got a unique sports hood, black powder coated front and rear bumpers and fender flares, 20 inch semi-gloss black alloys and black everywhere else as well. Inside you've got the leather trimmed upholstery, dual zone climate control air conditioning, satellite navigation, Apple CarPlay and Android Auto connectivity and the Uconnect 8.4 inch touchscreen. It's priced from about $104,500 plus the usual costs and it's actually pretty good value. And there are also now more than 55 Ram truck dealers in Australia. Overdrive. For more information and past programs, go to drivenmedia.com.au. COVID has changed the LCV market, especially in the 3.5 to 8 tonne range of vehicles. The LDV Deliver 9 is a cost-effective choice in this competitive segment. I drove the long wheelbase high roof variant that is powered by a 2-litre four-cylinder turbo diesel engine producing 110 kilowatts, 375 newton metres from just 1500 revs. It drives the rear wheels through a six-speed automatic transmission. Safety features include stop-start engine functionality, adaptive cruise control, autonomous emergency braking, electronic stability control, excellent reverse camera, lane departure warning, plenty of airbags plus more. The driver's position is pretty comfortable with an easy-to-read dash, smartphone connectivity and a 10.1-inch touchscreen. Dual external rear-view mirrors are a bonus. Load area practicality comes from a side sliding door, rear 180-degree opening doors and a huge capacity with wide floor area. Priced from around $44,726 plus the usual costs, it represents excellent value. You're listening to Overdrive. The concept of having to regularly charge electric vehicles has been compared to your mobile phone. We have got used to it and indeed now happily accept that you put your mobile phone on a charge on most nights. But the same mentality with an electric vehicle has been harder to come to grips with. Admittedly, this is a bit more cumbersome than a mobile phone and motoring journalists who test new cars often find this is a great task because... For the model they have, they are setting it up for the first time. But a few things make a difference. First, electric cars are getting better. And secondly, once you set it up, it becomes more natural to use. Now, the average car does about 13,000 kilometres a year, which is about 250 kilometres a week. Now, that's the average. And there are undoubtedly cars that travel greater distances and would have a bigger struggle with recharging an electric vehicle especially if needed to be done during a trip. But equally, there are a lot of cars that do the average or less, making an electric vehicle, in theory and perhaps practicality, needing to be charged 
perhaps just once a week. Not for everyone, but possibly for quite a lot. Now, electric vehicle technology is getting better. Over the Christmas holidays, I had one test car for a couple of weeks. It was a Hyundai Kona all-electric SUV. I picked a car up from the city, did a few local trips. Then on Christmas Eve, we went for a trip into the regional areas, not a huge distance, say about 70 kilometres or so, most of which was at highway travelling at about 110 kilometres an hour. Then we potted around the country village, visited a few people, came home on Christmas Day, and we still had 55% charge left in the battery. The Kona is rated as having a range of about 480 kilometres. That seems very achievable to me. Certainly, that covers my typical week. For a lot of cars, it might need only one charge every fortnight, if you are prepared to go close to the bottom of the charge. The other thing is getting used to doing it. If you have a car for more than a week, the recharging process flows more easily because of familiarity and companies are looking at systems that, similar to your mobile phone, can charge your vehicle by just parking over it on a special pad to get induction charging. But I did have an issue with the charging. I live in a relatively old house, and the power points in the garage are only single phase, and so the Kona is unlikely to charge up overnight, certainly not if it needs a pretty full charge. I've had this problem before with the Jaguar I-Pace. Lovely car, huge battery, performs incredibly for a heavy SUV and has a good range from a full battery. But on a single phase power socket, it can take up to 50 hours to charge. There are things you can do. A three phase power point is quicker. And there are special systems that you can install to make it quicker still. And if you are spending a lot of money on an electric car, a boosted charge system can be one of the most cost-effective solutions you can buy. I've said quite frequently that I love EVs because they are quiet and, most importantly, don't create local pollution. They reduce our fuel dependency on imports. They could even see the establishment of some assembly of cars back here in Australia, and they are the products that car manufacturers will be making. So my experience over the holiday period suggests that with a little bit of adaptability, you can have the benefits without too much of the weaknesses. This is Overdrive across Australia. Fortuna has been a successful Toyota based on the Hilux Ute. The four-wheel drive wagon is aimed at the true enthusiast, especially in GX guys, which I drove last week. Updated in August last year, the Fortuna now has 150 kilowatts of power and 500 newton meters of torque, and it really shows both on and off-road as well as better fuel economy. The entry-level GX model now comes with a dark grey interior, comfortable fabric seats, improved smartphone connectivity, a button-operated 8-inch multimedia screen and enhanced safety features. You can also get satellite navigation and digital radio as a $1,000 option. Towing capacity is now 3,100 kilos, and GX comes with a standard rear diff lock. I've driven the Fortuna on outback roads, on the beach, forest trails, heavy-duty four-wheel drive tracks. I've towed with it and driven it on long trips on the freeway. It's a great all-round four-wheel drive. Fortuna GX is priced from a touch over $49,000 plus the usual costs and forms an excellent base vehicle to accessorise. I'm... You're listening to Overdrive. 
couple of things we've been chasing up over the holiday period. I had an interview with Here Technologies, the uh, one of the world's leaders, perhaps the leader in mapping technology. I spoke to their senior vice president who looks after Asia, Pacific and Japan. Mapping is not just about building up towards autonomous vehicles, although that remains a major part of the exercise. We were looking at a whole range of other things, including traffic engineering and transport planning, that can benefit from the advances we've made in the collection and presentation of data. And I also dug out some old history. I cleaned out the garage and found some glorious old photos by Emile Mercier, great cartoonist, born in 1901, and he has some wonderful reflections on things like the Round Australia trials. We'll touch on those on our Facebook page, Overdrive City, showing just what that period produced. You're listening to Overdrive. And Brian Smith is indeed back. Brian, when you were a little lad, did you look out the window every time a garbage truck went by? I did, David, and the, it was um, it was the hope of seeing a rugby league player that I might know. Because <laughs> you might recall back in those days when, when rugby league players had honest jobs, um, they would often be employed by a council in the um, area that they played and it was quite often as uh, garbage men. Yeah, kept, kept them fit and gave them a job. Yes. Which probably didn't uh, work, work too many hours or and then gave them a chance to do a bit of training during the day. Yep. Did, there's been some research done. And there's an article in The Atlantic on why children love garbage trucks. Not Perhaps not all children, let's be honest, but certainly children who, uh, many children, have this idea for it. A couple of uh, reasons that have been put forward by psychologists, by authors of children's books, and by children themselves. And one of them, from the psychology point of view, is that humans thrive on routine. There's something regular to be able to look forward to. Uh, from the parent's point of view, it's to get rid of rubbish, but from the child, that some mechanical monster was that part of your image? Yeah, that I, I read this article, David. I wasn't sure I agreed terribly strongly with it. Um, for me, uh, it was more, I think, about a love of trucks or a love of, sort yes. of heavy vehicles than than the sort of uh, the regularity, although I, I did notice that... Um, uh, Bluey, that fantastic uh, children's television program, uh, actually had an episode where um, it, which involved taking the garbage out, and, uh, and the kids would wait out there uh, to say hi to the garbage truck driver and, and sort of give a wave and stuff, and that was part of the stuff or a special event for them. For me, it was more around sort of heavy vehicles, and in particular. Um, construction sites and I, I can remember my father taking me to the city and, and there would be holes, little square holes cut in the hoardings to allow kids to, and adults to basically watch the construction activity. So hmm. big trucks, uh, my own son loves loves a truck, he's got a, a delivery truck toy that he drives around which has got a little forklift attached and um, so I, I wonder whether it's it's more about the vehicle and the big sort of industrial plant than it is about garbage. Guy Tur Tubes uh, is the creator of the animated Amazon Children's series, 
I wondered if your your young son loves delivery trucks because of Amazon and the things get delivered to them, but that's another story. But uh, this guy, Guy, uh, had he writes and um, does the series Stinky and Dirty Show, the Stinky and Dirty Show. There is a grossed out factor about garbage trucks, isn't there? And one of them was yes. smells. And, you know, to be naughty is to create a smell. I'm, I'm talking bodily functions here. Uh <laughs> You know, there is a little bit of, oh, no, don't do that. Well, you know, is is it that there's this different environment, if I might use that word, that... I mean, it's sort of taboo, David, about smell. Yeah. All right, Brian, good to talk to you. Catch you up next time. Thank you, David. And that's Brian Smith, who, among other things, is a transport expert, but also has a rather acerbic look at life and a remembrance of things from his youth here on Overdrive. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Rano Alton and Rob Fraser and Paul Just for their great help with this program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, you can go to drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify or there's our Facebook page, Overdrive City. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.